Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. chance to meet. My name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I was thinking about well, celebrations. We've had a lot of celebrations around my house lately. We had a graduation, a high school graduation. We had a birthday, um, Father's Day, um, all these different celebrations. And there are opportunities to kind of feel significant. And I was kind of d- um, drilling into um, one of those a little bit more, but the high school graduation that I got to go to, my daughter graduated from uh, East High, and I was sitting there and I was noticing that they had the ladies in a pale blue gown and mortarboard and the guys were in black. And I noticed that they were alternating all throughout. In fact, I realized surely they changed the names around a little bit. They weren't necessarily straight alphabetical order because that would be a miracle if, if, if that whole class was alternating um, by male and female in alphabetical order. That, that just couldn't be. But I noticed an aberration in that sequence and that was in the front row. And I noticed that there were 10 ladies sitting, sitting there in their pale blue um, robes and they had them eventually stand up and uh, those 10 ladies were the ones, the 10 students with the highest GPA in the whole school. It was 10 ladies. And um, I hope that they felt that, uh, some recognition for their hard work, because surely that's a hard, uh, a hard uh, you know, difficult accomplishment considering all the different students that they were competing against. And that was probably very exciting for them. But part of the reality is that that was good and that was fun in graduation, but the reset button has been now set and they're gonna have to start over and they're gonna com- have to compete probably with a larger group of people, people that they haven't encountered before. And it's this challenge of where we find our significance and um, how do we gain that? And is it in things that we can do or does it come from somewhere else? And our sermon series today is, uh, that we're going through, we've already started it, but today is another one of that series, looks at where we gain our sense of significance and our feeling, uh, the, that feeling. The, the series is Just Like Us, Ordinary People Changing the World. And in this series, we are actually um, looking at the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples that Jesus called and looking at Uh, looking at their individual stories. Kind of each week we're taking one and looking a little bit closer at them, looking at their humanity, looking at their successes and their failures, looking at their joys and disappointments, their triumphs, their embarrassments, um, and through it all, um, how they are transformed and how they grow um, into significance that God um, works through them that these are ordinary people. If we look closer, the hope is that as we look closer at them, we realize that they're just like you and I, but they were called into this and they respond to that call. They're ordinary people that God uses to change the world. 
And as we recognize that they're ordinary people, and, um, and we actually benefited from their ministry, their response to that call, we realize that call today falls to us, that we are the ordinary people that God wants to work through again and continue to share the message, the good news of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to continue on this series. Last week we looked at James, and this week we are looking at James' brother. These are the Zebedee brothers, the, um, the, the brothers of thunder. Uh, last week was James, this week it is John. And just a little bit of background about John. John, um, we know quite a bit about. Um, he's in quite a few events. Uh, last week we heard how James was always mentioned with John with the exception of his death. Um, but we have several occasions where um, John is just mentioned and he's singled out. And uh, by word count, he wrote a significant portion of the New Testament. By word count, uh, he falls to the, the third, uh, third ranking person for who wrote the most new of the New Testament. First is Luke at, um, I think it's 27%. Paul wrote about 23%. John wrote just over 20%. So it's quite a bit. And um, so he wrote down um, for us that we benefit from this ministry of his. Um, um, a significant part that became the New Testament, but we also see him not only in his own writings, but in the writings of the other gospel writers and um, and, and various passages. And so we want to kind of dive into John a little bit more, look at his life and see who he is and um, how he was really an ordinary person despite the amazing uh, texts that we have for him. And we already had one earlier, that first um, part of chapter one, that beautiful passage, how we have light and dark and God and God's word and um, God's word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Absolutely amazing. And it, how beautiful that is. But where does that come from? We want to dive into that a little bit more and look into that a little bit. And so we're going to take a look at this. Um, as, you know, again, from last week, we know that um, from hearing about James that um, the Zebedee brothers were fishermen. Their father had a fishing business, and they um, um, grew up in their father's business, and they participated in that. But it seems that John also took some time to be in the ministry of John the Baptist. He was... Um, uh, spiritually interested, wanting to uh, know more about God and pursued him. And so uh, as a young person, he was in the, in the orbit, kind of a follower of John the Baptist. I know it's confusing, John and John, but um, hang, hang with me here. Um, so it's John the Baptist. But John the Baptist at one point sees Jesus, his relative, and, um, and says, Behold the Lamb of God. And John starts to follow Jesus at that point. And it's this interesting exchange. Um, uh, Jesus is going along and sees uh, John following behind him. And, um, and Jesus asks him, what do you want? Uh, you know, basically, why are you following me? And I, I, the, my reading of it, I don't know. We don't have the exact emotion, but my reading of it is John didn't know what to say. He's like, um, where are you staying? Um, and uh, Jesus' response is this beautiful response to John. He says, come and see. Come and see. 
and that starts Jesus following, I'm sorry, John following Jesus, and they're off. And they were um, um, probably, it's possible that John was actually a first cousin of Jesus. Um, we know this through the mother and the name and the connection in scripture. It does seem to be that they were related, but there's this formality that happens there, that that's the beginning point of that relationship where um, John is under the, well, under Jesus and learning from him directly in a special and unique way. And so the, this King John is present in so many different things, continues as Jesus has his Galilean ministry. Um, and uh, it, it, it seems that there is a time where um, the Zebedee brothers leave their father to, um, again, kind of follow Jesus in a significant way, in a, in a clear way. They leave their father behind, and they go and they follow him. It's kind of this, the following of Jesus, it, it seemed to be various steps in that direction until the point that Jesus actually calls John to officially be one of the 12 that he follows. And that's part of what happens. And as John is a part of this 12, um, it's worth noting that John was a part of an inner circle. In fact, around Jesus, you can almost imagine concentric circles, right? Uh, a small circle and a larger and a larger and a larger. And at the center, you have Jesus. And that smallest circle around them is Jesus' tightest circle of Simon and James and John. And then around that is the twelve which they're included in, um, but that's a close group that Jesus specifically called to himself. And then there's the 70 or 72 that Jesus sends out at one point to do preaching in the villages around. There's also the women that are there, and while it, we only have so much that's written in scripture, we know that Jesus' ministry was supported by them, and that they are there and, um, and are doing significant things, uh, but we just only have so much insight into how much they were actually doing. Um, and beyond that is the masses. So you have these concentric circles, and John is a part of that inner circle. This young man who was spiritually interested, I don't know if I said this before, but he was probably the youngest of the disciples. He was probably a teenager when he started following Jesus. This, this young person was brought into the inner circle of Jesus, and he had a front seat to so many different things. There was the transfiguration that we heard about last week when Jesus took um, this inner circle up on top of a mountain and he was transformed. And, and um, before their eyes, they saw Elijah and Moses speaking to Jesus in an amazing way. This transfiguration where basically Jesus' glory is a little bit more transparent and God speaks about Jesus. John was witness to this. Not everyone got to see this. They only shared about that. The inner circle only shared about it later. But there was those types of things. There was the time when um, John um, was doing ministry amongst the Samaritans, and a Samaritan village was not particularly welcoming of Jesus, and he was pretty incensed uh, and was uh, basically threatening, you know, Jesus, should I call down basically like hellfire on this village. And Jesus is like, no. Um, but uh, he, John was passionate 
as we heard. Last week we heard from Robbie about how um, James and John were seeking a place uh, of prominence to sit on Jesus' left and right side. They were passionate, and John, while he's young, he has this striving and wants to be there and be a part of it, and he is zealous for all that he is doing. And so he's, he's involved with all of these different things. He's invited to um, help set up the Passover um, for the Last Supper, that night where there's the foot washing. Um, there's where they're sitting at the table having the supper, and they seem to be, John is right there next to Jesus, and Peter's wanting to know who's going to betray Jesus, and John seems to lean in and asks, and Jesus tells him. John's the first one to know who is going to betray Jesus, that it's going to be Judas. Um, and for some reason, it doesn't get passed on to Peter, but John knows this. Later that night, they go to the Mount of Olives. Jesus wants to pray after the, the supper, after they sing a hymn, and then they go out onto the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. The, the disciples are there to pray, and Jesus brings that inner circle a little bit closer to where he's going to pray. He still goes on, but he asks them to pray and to be there. John is there. He has a front seat all along bearing witness to all of these things. Jesus is betrayed by Judas, and um, the, the uh, temple guard come and arrest him, and there's a trial. And Peter does go to that trial, uh, but he stays on the outside, and this is where he denies Jesus three times before the, the rooster crows. Um, but uh, John, somehow, because of his relationships, he was known by the high priest, he was able to get inside where the trial was going on. He had special access. Again, that front row seat, and he's striving to be close and to know. We see this even at the crucifixion. When it comes down to that, all the other disciples have run and hid. But John is the only disciple at the foot of the cross. He is there. And Jesus recognizes this and looks at him, looks at this who we think is his first cousin, and he puts his own mother into care of John. You know, he says, you know, basically, mother, behold your son, and, and John, behold your mother. Basically, Jesus knows he's going to die, and he needs to, as the eldest son, needs to put, take care of his mother. That is his job, and he puts her into the care of John. This is how close the relationship is. It's amazing. These and more. I haven't even listed everything, but in all of these cases, he had a front row seat. He was passionate. He had the right pedigree. Uh, you know, he was in Jesus' family, and uh, he's caring for Jesus' mom. He has all of these things. But the passage that I actually want to read for you tonight doesn't exist. It's amazing, but it doesn't exist. Um, it, 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 it's the, the, the passage that would show that John, who had a front seat, who was listening all along, um, who um, was witness to the resurrection of Jarius' daughter in a special way, the transfiguration, all of these different things, that he got it. But he didn't. He was afraid after the crucifixion. Jesus was dead and buried in the tomb, a tomb that had never been used before. 
And even though Jesus had been saying it, and he made a point of telling them that he would be resurrected after three days, the sign of Jonah, as Jonah was three days in the, in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. But they missed it. John missed it. This guy who had been striving, who was passionate, who had been listening all along, he missed it. I think that the disciples should have been there. They, if they heard it, if they really believed it, because they must have not believed it yet. But if they believed it, I believe they would have been selling seats and hot falafel to everybody. They say, you got to come and see this. You got to come and see this. And then there's the Roman guards right over there. But just wait. He said he's going to come back. What's going to happen? I don't know. Um, let, let's see this. But he misses it. And I can't read you that passage. It doesn't exist. Because this guy who had the inside track, who was in that inner circle, still missed it. You could be that close to Jesus, and you could still miss it. Isn't that amazing? He's just an ordinary guy. He's a good guy. He's an ordinary guy, and he missed it. And so this is what we do have. We have John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. This is how that morning unfolded by John's own word. Hear God's word for us. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and ran to the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, and, uh, sorry, as well as the cloth uh, that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw This is God's word for us. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would open up this word. Might your Holy Spirit be here, that we would come to know and love you more, to realize that you move and act through ordinary people to do amazing things. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's more that could be said, but the, the short version is that it seems that the disciple that Jesus loved is John. It, it, this is a, a, a kind of a, a nickname that John seems to use for himself later in the gospel. And he points out he made it to the tomb first before Peter. Uh, so I don't know, I guess Peter's older. I don't know, they're both fishermen, but you know, uh, John's younger. I guess the younger guy beat him there. And, and John just kind of had to slip that in there, right? He's a work in progress. He's a work in progress, but he gets there first, and he looks in, and these tombs, they're not big. I mean, it's probably smaller than this stage right here. Um, uh, hollowed out, the, the, the rock can be quite soft um, uh, in um, various places there in Israel, and they would kind of dig into a hillside, and they could lay out a place for a tomb, a tomb that had never been used. 
And so he kind of comes to the edge and he looks in and he can see and Peter finally shows up, you know, slow Peter. And uh, he goes right in and then eventually John goes in. He had missed the resurrection. They hadn't missed it. Jesus had talked about it, but they see this. And now amazingly, he saw and he believed. Do you remember that first uh, uncomfortable conversation where Jesus says, what do you want? He's like, well, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come uh, come and see. Jesus uh, has now orchestrated it so that John has now come and he saw and he believed. Jesus is no longer there. No tomb could hold him. He is set free. No death could not hold him in its grip. He is overcome and he reveals himself to it. But John, in this early passage here, um, he, uh, Jesus apparently hasn't revealed himself to others yet. Um, uh, it's not the first resurrection appearance, but this empty tomb, John is the first one that we have a record that believed. Something about this, recalling that Jesus, teaching that this would happen, and now that there's this in the linens, something about this, I don't know. Um, another gospel says that one part is folded up, but another part was just there. You know, it, it describes it like that Jesus just kind of Jedi-like and, uh, and the cloth just fell there? Like, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. And it's actually probably the other way around. Jedi, uh, George Lucas got the idea from this. Um, but uh, that somehow when John sees this and remembers and sees, he believes. And he's transformed by it. And while he had been striving and, you know, almost overachieving, he now believes and recognizes that it's what God has done that opens up a new way for us. And I had hoped that, you know, there would have been in the passage and they would have been able to see uh, the resurrection. And it would have almost made sense in, in the way that the world works in a twisted way, I think in a, in a dysfunctional way, but that at least there would be the world's logic that the inner, the person in the inner circle would at least get it and would be close enough and would be able to figure it out and would be able to show us. But that's not the way that God works. That's the way the world works, that people might have seats of position and they might have um, access, special access and special knowledge. But, but Jesus doesn't work that way. He works and he serves and he loves and he acts and we get to respond. Respond to what he has done. And that's what we have in John. John is a life transformed. As we carry on and we see the rest, we see that he has a life that's transformed. Later on, he actually reflects on the resurrection. He have, we have this because John wrote epistles, three uh, epistles. And in the first epistle, um, uh, so first John chapter 4, starting with um, verse... Seven. it says this, John reflecting on the, the resurrection and what has happened through Jesus. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. This is how God showed his love for us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. 
No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Wow. Amazing. This is John's reflection on it in the meaning of Christ's ministry and what he was doing there and what he was accomplishing and what it means. John, this young man who was passionate and striving and almost overachieving and in that inner circle, it wasn't anything that he did. God loved us. and We get to receive that and respond to that. And that leads to a new way forward and calls us to live differently, to love one another. That's Jesus' command. He's reflecting Jesus' command. You know, he talks about uh, what's the greatest commandment, and he talks about two commandments. He, Jesus, all, you know, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus also says, I give you a new command to love one another. Love one another. And if we follow Jesus' way, we lean into that, having received the love of God and, and share that love with others. We live a new way forward. And it makes possible. It can take the whatever a great person is to the most ordinary person, all of them. If we receive the love of Christ, the love of God, and share that love, love one another, we can leave, live transformed lives. I think that's what we have in John and how this moved and act. I want to share actually one more passage. John wrote so much, and he wrote a variety of different things. He wrote a gospel, he wrote epistles, and we also have Revelation. And Revelation is actually the one book um, that actually says that it was written by John. We know elsewhere um, the church recognized that, that John was involved in the epistles and involved with the gospel. We call it the gospel according to John, or just John. Um, um, but Revelation is a book that actually um, John says he wrote it. And this is the last book of the Bible. A lot of people avoid this book. I don't know. I think uh, I used to teach it in my classes, and I would tell my students that when we get here, you know, you'll know that I'm done when I talk about a Jewish wedding. And that's the last chapter of the Bible. Okay? I mean, it's an image that's used in a variety of different places. John loves images, light and dark, and, and, and he gets from Jesus this, this wedding image and all of these different things. But the last chapter is a beautiful chapter. Again, from the pen of John, he's seeing this vision, guided by the Holy Spirit to write this down. He says this amazing thing. So it's the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22, where he says this. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as crystal clear flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb um, and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Let me just pause there. There's been all these images in Revelation of what heaven looks like. In some cases, it's like a new, it's a city. Sometimes it's like um, Eden redone. Um, it, it can it look like a variety of different things. Here, the image is like a new Jerusalem where God has his throne right there and Jesus, the lamb, is right beside it. And from the throne of God flows a crystal clear river, the river of life. We're getting back to Eden. 
you know, all the way since Genesis chapter 3, right? Chapter 3 chapters in um, where things were broken. Humans messed it up and we've been looking for how we get here. Here in the very last chapter that we have that comes from the pen of John, we have this image of what we're getting access to this. In fact, even more so, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Wow. I don't know if any of us have ever been farmers, but if you had a crop that yield its fruit 12 times a year, that would be amazing. That's amazing. You know, if you get one or two, that's good. If you sneak a third in, wow, that's great. 12? 12 is amazing. But that's what happens, the tree of life. Remember the access to the, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was prohibited? I talked, I, I'm fond of saying there was a, like an angel, uh, like a Jedi with a lightsaber, right? The sword, the flaming sword, like no, uh, uh, Adam and Eve, you will not have access to the garden, right? We've had no access. But here, it's recreated, new life. From the throne of God comes this crystal uh, river, and the tree of life is there bearing fruit. Um, and and what is, what's this fruit? What's it good for? And the leaves of the trees are for healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. And then, of course, uh, skipping ahead, they will no, um, not need light of a lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. This beautiful image, we're getting back to Eden and restoration and healing because of what's happened through Christ. John's sharing this vision with us. He wants us to know about this. And then the very end of it is this image, the wedding. I mentioned the wedding, and I told my students, and I'll tell you now, I'll, I'll be done when I get to the Jewish wedding. And we're a little bit familiar with this because at Jesus' birth, you have um, Mary and Joseph, and right there, betrothed, which we're not big on betrothal these days, but betrothed is that they're pledged to be married. It's like they're promised. Some call, you know, some circles here in America, you'll still have like a promise. So you might get like a promise ring or something like that. It's that you're betrothed. You're, you're, you're not fully engaged. You're not married yet, but you're promised. And so there's this betrothal. And it's the stage of a wedding back in the, in the first century. This idea that it's going to happen. And that um, the bride is to prepare herself. Jesus uses this for parables and things like this. And her bridesmaids would be with her. And at some point, the bridegroom will come with his party and collect the bride. And they will go off and they'll have the ceremony. And they're going to have the wedding, which is the biggest party of their lives. Because... Life is tough in the first century, and that's about the one big party you get, and so they blow out the doors, and it can be as much as a week long. Um, that's the one big thing, but, you, but the bride waits. The bride waits. And so we have this image of a Jewish wedding, and Jesus in the last few verses says he's going to come. Like a, like a bride comes to collect... Um, his, uh, the bridegroom comes to collect the bride. The groom comes to get the bride. He says he's going to come. And John records for us three times, come, come. And Jesus says, yes, I'm coming soon. And the second to last verse of the Bible is, amen, come, Lord Jesus. John, who was in the inner circle, 
who had that front row seat but missed the resurrection, gets it, and he doesn't want to miss it. He doesn't want to miss it. He got called home early. He's the only disciple that we know by church history. He's the only one that died uh, of old age. He was not a martyr. All the others, all the other ones you're going to hear in the rest of the series, they died. But John, um, mysteriously, God's providence, was he, he lived to old age and died. And he leaves us with this image. He missed that resurrection, but he wasn't going to miss the second coming. It leaves us in this tension. The second coming. So John missed it. He didn't get to see it. He's already with the Lord now. But we are called to live in this tension. Come, Lord Jesus. We don't want to miss it. We don't want to pull a John the first time around. We don't want to miss it. Uh, we want to be ready and living in anticipation. But honestly, it creates a tension in us. How, how do we deal with this? Right, because like there's daily life, and there's what I need to do after the service. There's what I need to do for tomorrow, and then the next day, and I gotta pay my bills, and gotta do all these things. But I'm waiting for Jesus to come, and it creates a tension in us. And, and how do we live in that? And that's the challenge. And, and I think there's scripture, and I think there's help, but it makes us stronger. It makes us stronger if we live in that tension. The incident in uh, north of Philadelphia on 95, you know, the collapse of the overpass, right? The truck came, came in, accident, fire, and the whole thing collapsed. It, it, the heat did not necessarily affect the concrete directly, it was the metal. Because the way we build overpasses these days is a combination of concrete and steel, okay? And these together can deal with tension and deal with compression. The weight of the cars causes compression, but you also have to deal with the weight. And when that fire happened, that the, the concrete and steel um, combination that they had was compromised and it collapsed, and now it's a mess. I got to drive through the edge of it yesterday when I was coming home from Western Pennsylvania. But it's a challenge to live in that tension, but if we do, amazing things can happen. Amazing things can happen. We were taking that overpass for granted, right? Like, because when it comes down, people are freaking out like, oh my goodness, and what are we going to do? And, you know, Atlanta, it took them like a year to fix uh, a collapsed overpass. And they figured out how they're going to fix it in a matter of, a, what, a couple months or something like that? In weeks, it will be drivable, but they're going to work on it. It's high priority. Um, to restore that connection, to have it in tension again. Coming back to what I'm talking about. Living in this tension can do amazing things. And we are invited to live in this tension of come Jesus. John's you know, second to last line here. Amen, come Lord Jesus. We need to live in this tension. And as we do... Um, living with what Christ has done and the love of God and uh, cooperating with the Holy Spirit. God can do amazing things. He wants to work with us. He wants to work in us. He wants to work through us. Just as he did with John, a young guy striving. He was zealous, not always perfect. He had that front seat but missed it. But God worked through him and he wants to work through us as well. There's an opportunity in the midst of all of this, and it's an opportunity that we can seize on. Let us pray about seizing on that opportunity. Please join me.
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this follower. I'm so glad that you didn't gloss over the difficulties, the striving, the zealousness, the, the fire and brimstone that John wanted to call down. Um, you didn't gloss over them. You let us see that the disciples were not perfect, that they were ordinary, that they had ambitions, that they had desires, but they could be transformed. Lord, we ask that you would work in our lives. Lord, we hand over our lives to you. We ask that you would help us live transformed lives, transformed by your love and what you have done in the person of Jesus and his death and in his resurrection. Help us to live in the tension of waiting for the second coming, Lord. Lord, we want it to come soon. Lord, how wonderful would that be? That there would be no more pain, no more tears, that it would all go away. Lord, we live anticipation, but are ready to do what it is that you would call us to do. Help us to be guided by your Holy Spirit. Help us to live uh, lives impacted by your love for others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name.